Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It's April the 8th, and the pandemic continues to uh, radically disrupt the world. Uh, Ece Temelkuren is a very well-known Turkish writer who, since the military coup in 2016, uh, has been living in Zagreb, Croatia. Uh, Ece, how's the pandemic in in Zagreb, in Croatia? It's pretty good because uh, Zagreb uh, is now one of the safest places in on the planet. Uh, so that's nice, and people are following the rules very carefully. Um, the precautions were uh, very quick, uh, so we are we're good. The weather is good, and you can still take walks in the parks, uh, being careful with the social distancing and so on. So it's, it's, it's uh, manageable, I would say. Well, finally, some good news on, uh, on the weather front, but the, the news on the political front, I think, is, is less good. Uh, you're very well known as a, as a Turkish uh, newspaper columnist and writer. Your last book, How to lose a country was a warning about the slide around the world from dictator from democracy into dictatorship uh, Eje, how is the pandemic uh, quickening that slide from uh, democracy to dictatorship we've seen a lot of disturbing trends over the last couple of months particularly i think in eastern europe in hungary and poland Well, uh, I wish it was only there. Uh, I think it's happening everywhere uh, where there are right-wing populists such as United States, Britain and several others. Uh, well, I'm like when I wrote the book, I felt like a Cassandra, um, you know, telling all these horrible things will happen to you because it happened in Turkey. And maybe for to some people, it sounded a bit too depressing and Uh, too pessimist, but now I am seeing that you know all the steps that I counted in how to lose a country. There were seven steps from democracy to dictatorship, are actually, as you put it, quickening. I mean, like they are accelerating. The 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 uh, the process is accelerating, uh, especially in the United States. I can see that uh, toying with the institutions, putting. Uh, extreme politicization uh, before the science and several other steps in the in the book is now happening. Uh, so, you know, I am not very happy that my predictions are proven right by pandemic. Um, but yeah, it, it is not only hungry or, um, you know, the, the obvious uh, examples. Unfortunately, what coronavirus brought to world is is like the best conditions for uh, authoritarian regimes i feel like sometimes coronavirus and authoritarian regimes are soulmates so to speak very briefly uh you you do have your seven se- you do have your seven steps from democracy to dictatorship but 
how and why is the pandemic accelerating this process? Because due to the pandemic, uh, these authoritarian leaders can always say that these are you know, precautions for your health and they can induce such bans as social distancing, uh, being contactless, uh, you know, they're creating this contactless world uh, and we're trying to find out how to get in contact with each other. Uh, also, they can always legitimize the bans on freedom of speech by saying that we are now dealing with something beyond politics, uh, above politics, so let's not talk about politics, which is a very dangerous uh, statement, which is a very political statement as well. Uh, so all these precautions that are taken against uh, coronavirus is so similar to an oppressive regime's, uh, you know, favorite uh, restrictions. Orban in Hungary, it seems at least, has, has shut down democracy pretty officially. Uh, the Poles have done something similar or are on the road to doing something similar. Uh, what other countries do you see as um, accelerating dictatorship beyond Hungary and, and Poland? And I'm particularly curious as to your take on what's happening in the United States at the moment. Well, uh, United States and Britain are worrying me, not only in terms of authoritarian regimes, because they, you know, they are, we cannot say that they are, um, you know, authoritarian regimes by the book, like, you know, per se. But uh, what's happening right now uh, is a moral catastrophe. It is as if uh, there are two sides in the world now uh, in a moral war. One side is a social Darwinist saying that we are going to go on with the survivors. And the other side is more like we, we shouldn't leave anybody behind. So, uh, you know... It, and unfortunately, the biggest countries of the world at the moment, most, you know, United States, Russia, and several others, are run by leaders who are uh, true believers, believers of social Darwinism. So, you know, and it, it is very obvious that they, they don't care about the people, but rather about big capital. That is what is worrying to me. And, you know, good side of the story uh, is that many more people are becoming... Uh, aware uh, of the uh, of the brutality of the system we are living in, so this is good part of pandemic. I think everybody, I mean, like Britney Spears, even called for general strike. So uh, more and more people who thought themselves as apolitical are now becoming political. They are seeing that the world is politics, and there is nothing above and beyond politics, uh, and they are raising their voices towards a more moral world, a more, um, you know, humane world, so to speak. Eje, you say the world is political. It's also, of course, economic. I know you have some strong feelings on the injustices of the global capitalist system. Um, to, to what extent is this pandemic crisis also, I wouldn't say an inevitable, but perhaps a, an unsurprising outcome of, of global capitalism? Well, I think we are seeing the true face uh, of capitalism. Uh, the sugar coat is uh, melting, so to speak, with this pandemic. 
I don't have strong feelings. I know that it's an inhumane system and it has to be reset. And even financial times, the stronghold of capitalism, um, you know, made a huge re- t- head, uh, headline about this. The uh, capitalism needs a reset. So it's not only me, or it's not about having feelings. It is very obvious to to the naked eye that this system we're going on, we're living in, cannot go on like this. Um, and the you know, um, it is good that we have time in our hands, and we are seeing all the cruelty of the system so. Um, so openly right now, because I think this is the first time in human history that we have time uh, to make a plan because the world is shut down uh, and we can sit at home and think what kind of a world uh, we want to live in. And we have time to imagine this world. And uh, one of the most important things of this period, I think, um, we are reinventing solidarity. Economically, you you are mentioning economy. That's why I have to uh, tell you this interesting experiment in Turkey. Um, you know, these leaders, right-wing populist leaders, they are caring about big capital. But meanwhile, small economies, uh, p- economies of small people are in ruins. Uh, so like every other right-wing populist leader, um, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, president of Turkey, are trying to obstruct uh, the solidarity that is flourishing among the people during the corona pandemic. Uh, So there are opposition leaders. uh, They are mayors of three big uh, cities in Turkey. And now they are trying to reinvent solidarity, removing removing the money uh, out of the the transactions, so to speak. So they are trying to connect people who needs money, who needs support, I would say, who needs support with those people who can, you know, give support. It's not only in Turkey, though. I, I, I was watching Naples. Naples uh, started to uh, revive an old tradition. They are hanging baskets from their windows and they're putting what they can in the basket. And the, you are, you know, you're allowed to take whatever you want whatever you need, not want, whatever you need. And if you have the means, uh, you're supposed to put in that basket. So all the entire Naples, and now it's spreading to Italy as well, is now, you know, doing this uh, solidarity action. And there are many other um, new inventions of solidarity that is removing the finances, so to speak, from uh, from human life. Uh, and these uh, actions, I would say, Andrew, should not be taken as a passing by uh, act of compassion. Uh, not, uh, they shouldn't be thought as transient, uh, you know, um, impulses uh, of compassion in, in hard times. I think they should be taken as the samples or the glimpses of a new world that we can uh, create after this coronavirus. I don't want to sound too optimistic, but these are very good signs. Uh, because, you know, before this, uh, many of us thought that humankind lost its, lost its morality. Humankind lost, lost its moral compass because we were so uh, busy watching all these right-wing populist leaders and their uh, devotees and so on. But now I am seeing in these hardest times that people are trying to keep 
the good and the beautiful. And that gives me uh, motivation to imagine the world, um, to imagine a new world. This is uh, interesting. So you're the, now you're the reverse of Cassandra. I don't know uh, what, what name we would use for that. You're, you're an optimist because of the, the op, the, you're, you're an optimist because of the, the sort of the, the human generosity or the instinctual generosity that's coming out of crisis, particularly at a local level. Uh, which is, of course, uh, very encouraging. We've had a number of people on this show over the last couple of weeks talk about the same thing, Douglas Rushkoff in particular. But, EJ, how do we institutionalize that generosity? I, I appreciate your points about what's happening in Naples. We have similar things going on in, in the Bay Area in some ways. But how does that get formalized, institutionalized? How do we rebake generosity and solidarity back into the political and economic system as we get out of this crisis? Wonderful question. Thank you for asking this. Actually, I'm writing a new book, and this is the last chapter I wrote in the book, um, the most recent chapter. Uh, I have been thinking about this lately, how to institutionalize uh, these uh, instant solidarity ties that are, you know, mushrooming here and there. And... I came to think that the first thing we have to do is to get rid of the fear of fear. Because uh, as soon as the crises end, we tend to forget our, uh, you know, feared, uh, afraid versions. We are embarrassed of it. So we want to erase the memory of fear. Uh, but while doing that, we compromise um, inst institutionalizing those solidarity ties that we built during the times of fear. So the politics, the new politics, should be telling people right now uh, that, okay, don't forget this, we are doing this. So th the politics should be talking to people to for them to acknowledge this, uh, this period of time as a as an experiment, uh, as a, you know, as an initiation, um, uh, initiative, sorry, initiative for a new world. So uh, on narrative basis, uh, the first thing that should be done is to tell people not to fear the fear, because this is how wonderful you look when you're in fear, uh, when you're in crisis. This is how you wonderfully manage the crisis. Uh, this is how you build solidarity ties. So remember this. This is the first thing. But in terms of more, more, uh, you know, political work, I think we have to think, uh, we have to reimagine politics as uh, portable politics. I'm calling this portable politics. Uh, politics from now on should not be trying to attract attention to a movement, to a narrative, or to a party, but rather it should be like a portable table. You, you sh uh, the political activists should carry the political activism to where the attention is. Now it's in coronavirus, so they should be, you know, going deep into the coronavirus stuff and doing politics there. So it won't be about narrative, the politics. It won't be about slogans. It won't be about uh, really mm, trying to form an organization, but rather 
going uh, towards the solidarity ties, being there and institutionalizing them, tr- uh, teaching people, uh, so to speak, how to institutionalize this. Uh, and many people might be doing this right now. I, I'm not really seeing it, but I am assuming that I am not the only person who would think this. Um, so, uh, but after this crisis, I am pretty sure that people, the political activists, those people who are thinking about politics, will be reorganizing or redesigning all the institutions uh, in a way that would fit the future crises. Because I don't, I do not think that coronavirus is the first. Uh, you know, last crisis that we're going to see. We are going to be seeing uh, a series of crises and coronavirus will not, you know, go away during the summer, uh, you know, for good, obviously. Ajay, um, you're a veteran of the Arab Spring. You told me in a previous conversation that the Gezi demonstrations uh, in Turkey changed not just your life, but many of your friends' and compatriots' lives. Um To what extent is this uh, coronavirus crisis part of the narrative of Gezi and the Arab Spring and many of the other Occupy-style movements that sprang up after the last financial crisis? Actually, this portable politics idea came to me because of the Gezi uprising. Uh, Because during the Gezi uprising... um, It was the best of the times, but worst of the times, whatever. We were uh, overwhelmed with several emotions. And, um, you know, it was a flow and everybody was in the flow. But uh, and at that point, we were also uh, thinking how to institutionalize, institutionalize this, you know, all this uh, political energy and so on. And then uh, some people did it, and it became a um, permanent organization. Uh, it is one uh, particular organization that I, you know, that inspired me when thinking about portable politics. It was, it is called uh, Vote and Beyond. Uh, those people who met during Gezi uprising, they organized themselves. Uh, it, it's a countrywide web of people, uh, thousands and thousands of people. Uh, and they became, um, you know, they started monitoring uh, the voting process. As you know, in Turkey, there's a lot of election fraud. Uh, so, and they became the only respectable, trusted voice when it comes to judging if there is election fraud or not. And this is completely, this was, you know, this whole thing came from Gezi uprising. So it is actually doable. Um, you know, what we established here as instant solidarity ties can be turned into um, into institutional, political uh, entities. But unfortunately, one thing is necessary. It is determination and patience. Uh, and this is, uh, this will be hard, I think, because uh, this crisis is a, very, you know, specific crisis, coronavirus. And we are going to see other crises which have completely different, uh, absurd and strange uh, requirements, so to speak. So we have to uh, 
we will uh, actually we will uh, reimagine politics in such a way that it can be fluid and it can take the shape of the crisis. So it's going to be very portable from now on, I think. And it's not going to be about, uh, and this is not easy for me to say, it's not going to be about left, right, and so on and so forth, but it's going to be standing upon uh, core moral values. And this is what's happening in the United States as well. I'm like, people are not following, uh, I don't know, as much as they did before, uh, the politics, the party politics, but they are following uh, the doctors, the sci- scientists, and those people who really care about human life. So I think we're in a good spot right now. Finally, Ajay, you're in kind of double exile. You, as I said at the beginning of this conversation, you've been living in Zagreb since the Turkish military coup in 2016. And now because of the virus, you're you're not seeing anyone in Zagreb either. Um, what are you reading? Uh, what books are cheering you up, keeping you, keeping you company in this double crisis, in your double exile? Oh, God, I, I envy those people who can read books at the moment. <laughs> Normally, I immerse myself in books uh, when I am unhappy or like when I'm having hard times. But this one uh, is making me, you know, I don't know. I, uh, I cannot really focus on anything. So what I'm doing is I'm reading New Yorker uh, and I'm reading London Review of Books, uh, my favorite two magazines. Um, and that's it. I cannot even watch uh, a film from beginning to end. This is like very embarrassing to say, but yeah. Uh, any suggestions then? Uh, we're always ending on, uh, the, 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 on the Daily Show now with... A suggestion from our guests about what other people should read in the crisis. One book that will will keep them company and perhaps give them some perspective, some wisdom in the in 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 um, in these darker days. Actually, I have one. Uh, it's a book that I um, read uh, when I had an operation, a surgical operation, when I was fifteen, and I was supposed to lie down without any movement for four months. And the book that's, you know, kept me going in those times was uh, Zorba from Nikos Kazantzakis. I think it's a good book in these times, uh, not only to cheer you up, but also to rethink about what we are living for and how we are living. And it was made, of course, into the famous film Zorba the Great, right? Exactly. But the book is better, of course, despite the fact that I am in love with Anthony Quinn eternally. <laughs> You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.